0: Hear God's word from Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 34. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, And there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You may remember one of the first knock-knock jokes you learned. Knock-knock, who's there? Banana. Banana who? Knock-knock, who's there? Banana. Banana who? And it goes on and on and on. And when kids try to repeat this joke, sometimes they understand it, sometimes they don't, but it gets to the point where you really want them to get to what? Orange. (laughs) Knock-knock, who's there? Orange. Orange who? Aren't you glad I didn't say banana? Banana. It's a great relief when that one finally comes because, you know, this endless chain is over here in Mark. There has been an endless chain of confrontations, people coming to Jesus, confrontation after confrontation after confrontation. And tonight we finally get to the orange, the one at the end, the sigh of relief that brings us to a a conclusion. And he comes with sincerity after all these others have come with conflict and to divide And to prove Jesus wrong, this man comes to listen. Our structure tonight is simply divided by the two sections you see in your Bible. First of all, we'll be looking at the resurrection conflict with the Sadducees. And then we'll be looking at the great commandment, the conversation with one of the scribes. So let's look at this resurrection conflict. This is the last of the banana knock-knock jokes. This has been quite quite an avalanche of confrontations coming to Jesus. started with uh, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, moved on to the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now the Sadducees come. They provide this question for Jesus about this marriage. A man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second brother took her and died, leaving no offspring. And then the third likewise. So all these seven died. So who's going to be married to her on the last day? This, we'll realize, just like all these other confrontations up to this point, is not a sincere question. They're not actually concerned about who will be married to this woman on the last day. This is a cover-up. Jesus will answer their question in typical fashion because he gets the question behind the question. And he's going to address the assumptions and the heart conditions behind their question. But what they bring to him is this example from Deuteronomy 25 out of the Old Testament. This leveret marriage where a man, a brother was supposed to preserve the line of his brother if he had no offspring and was supposed to marry his dead brother's wife in order to continue his dead brother's line. The Sadducees bring this as an example to try to make the resurrection seem absurd because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they're trying to say, see, if you can't answer this, then obviously the resurrection isn't going to happen And there are lots of assumptions the Sadducees bring to this conversation that are problematic. First of all, they don't believe in the resurrection. Their question is mocking the resurrection itself. Second of all, they don't believe in angels. We find that from Acts chapter 23. They also don't believe in the whole Old Testament as God's word. They only believe in the Pentateuch, the first five books. They view themselves as purists. So the Sadducees were this unique group of elitists there in Jerusalem, typically nobility, and they had these uh, specific beliefs. It was not an organized group the way the Pharisees were, but it was a group nonetheless. Old Testament support for the resurrection comes largely from Daniel chapter 12, Isaiah chapter 26, and it is implied or assumed in many other places. But the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books, it has no explicit teachings on the resurrection of the dead. So, therefore, the Sadducees think, well, if we only hold to the first five books, then we shouldn't hold to the resurrection. The Sadducees sound like your classic secularists. They deny supernatural intervention or miracles by denying the resurrection. They deny supernatural beings by denying angels, and they're denying the authority of God's revelation, or they're only holding to select portions of God's word that fits with their presuppositions by only holding to the Pentateuch and Jesus responds to their parable, their question in parable form with two accusations, two explicit accusations. And then a third implicit accusation. First, he says, you do not know the scriptures. Ouch. That's an attack on people who think they are the purists when it comes to God's word. We hold to the Torah. It hurts their understanding of their theology. The point is they miss the whole counsel of God. They miss how God has revealed himself through the history of Israel from Genesis through Malachi. And as we know, all the way through Revelation. They're limiting it to just the Pentateuch and they misunderstand the Pentateuch itself. There are plenty of instances in the Pentateuch where angels exist, yet somehow the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. And they miss the whole concept of what the word of God is anyway. Scripture is the progressive, redemptive revelation of God as he's saving his people and speaking and showing who he is to his people. As Moses wrote through the prophets and through the historians of the Old Testament into the New Testament, where the fullness of salvation was revealed in none other than Jesus himself standing right there in front of them. For those who do not know the scriptures, the Sadducees, it's no surprise that they couldn't identify the word of God standing before them. Because Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus also says, you do not know the power of God. You do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God in verse 24. They believe that what they see is how things always will be. They assume that marriage must continue as we know it. So therefore, if they can present an example of one woman, seven brothers, that makes no logical sense in this context of how marriage ought to go for all eternity, then they think they've proven the resurrection false. But the problem is, they're denying God's power to create something greater than marriage, to create a new existence better than what we know. They're assuming everything has to continue as we see it. Because the truth is, marriage will be replaced with something better after the resurrection. Jesus says, when they rise from the dead, verse 25, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus answers that we will be like the angels in this regard. It doesn't mean, unfortunately, for some of us that we're going to have wings and halos. Also, those are false understandings of angels anyway. We will be like the angels in that there is one focus and it is the glory of God. There is one cause to serve and it is the glory of God. We're not going to become angels. Instead, we're going to be entirely consumed with the greatest cause ever. We will be like them in the worship of God, the glory and proclamation of the all-good, majestic Creator. Jesus' answer also isolates a specific form of an, of idolatry, a specific sin. And it's one that elevates marriage or a spouse or sexual fulfillment to the highest level of human existence. Jesus' answer here is especially difficult to swallow for those who have an unhealthy attachment to marriage or the idea of marriage. One commentator put it this way. He says, For those for whom marriage is the basis of the deepest joy and love on earth, this is a hard saying. Now, this is an example I used to use when I was teaching and the high school level, so forgive the elementary nature of this example, but the best food I've ever had is fried chicken. I can't imagine heaven without fried chicken. How could it be heaven without fried chicken? That obviously comes from a very narrow, experienced-based, southern-based experience of what is eternally good. You really think there could be nothing better than fried chicken in heaven? It's like a child believing that fast food nuggets are the best food ever because that's all they've been exposed to. Some think that marriage and sexuality are the undebatable pinnacle of human existence. So we see people define themselves in terms of sexuality or their relationships or their marriage. And this also reveals a narrow experience-based understanding of what is eternally good. Marriage is good indeed. It's a gift from God. But it is only a foreshadow of the union of Christ to his bride, the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And then in Revelation 19, it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We are being prepared not to be married to a human spouse for all eternity, but to be married to Christ, our groom. And Christ is human. I don't want to get into Trinitarian um, heresy here, but we will be united to Christ. And you've probably heard this famous quote from C.S. Lewis, but I'll read it again. Let us not think that marriage is the fulfillment of all our existence. Jesus is. And there's something far greater coming for those who are in Christ. Jesus' answer shows that we anticipate something greater than, even, greater than anything that we know today. Not just greater pleasure, but also greater holiness, also greater wisdom, also greater depth of knowledge of God. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul also says, we will receive wisdom That's going to shame the world's greatest thinkers on that day. And no one can comprehend what God has prepared for those who love him. This is a great hope that we look forward to. Jesus' third accusation against the Sadducees is implicit. He is accusing them of not knowing God himself. He quotes Exodus 3, 6 in verse 26. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus is arguing based on God's character here. God's character is the foundation of the resurrection. If God is not who he is, there is no resurrection, but he is the I am. He is the origin. He is the foundation of life. He is the one who sustains life and brings new life. And he has entered into an eternal covenant with his people. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, God says. This was an eternal covenant that God made with Abraham. He does not now have a covenant with dead men. Jesus says he is not God of the dead, but of the living. This eternal covenant is not going to end when we cease to breathe on this earth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of their covenant with God, will be raised to new new life and be united to their bodies on that last day because of God's covenant character. And so will Moses, and so will anyone who has faith in this God. Now, spoiler alert, here in about four days after this encounter, encounter, resurrection happens. (laughs) Jesus is raised from the dead. And this is going to prove everything about the Sadducees' beliefs to be wrong. As he would rise bodily from the grave, the conflict would be resolved before their very eyes. Paul says, this is of first importance. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Maybe Paul had the Sadducees in mind when he wrote. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is the hope that we stand on as Christians. And that spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in God's people. And so he also will raise, he will also give life to our mortal bodies through the spirit. The spirit of life is given to all who believe. All who have faith in the Savior. If you've not placed your faith in the Savior, look to Jesus. Believe in the one who has risen from the dead. He appeared to 500 after he rose from the dead. His disciples gave up their lives for the truth of his resurrection. He lives. Do not let secularism get in the way. Do not let the human tendency to downplay what cannot be seen or the spiritual realm. Don't let this secularism interfere. Don't let it drown out the hope of the resurrection and the eternal life that we have in Jesus. Look to him. Only in him is their life. Imagine witnessing that conversation and then witnessing Christ rise from the dead. There was one witnessing this conversation. So we move on now to look at this one scribe, starting in verse 28. The great commandment. I understand there's a lot here. I probably could have divided this into two sermons. Jesus, once again, has been confronted now by the Sanhedrin. The knock-knock joke is endless. The Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they come and they confront him, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now the Sadducees. He has evidenced his unmatched insight, his knowledge of Scripture and his divine authority. And so after this conversation that we're about to read, nobody dares to ask him any more questions. They get it. Those who will submit will submit, and those who have hardened their hearts have made up their minds. But now we have a new interaction, a very different kind. This is the last of the knock-knock jokes. Aren't you glad I didn't say banana? Amidst a flurry of insincere questioning that's trying to dismantle Jesus' public reputation, at least one man was listening eagerly. This man wanted to hear the truth. He, like blind Bartimaeus, was given eyes to see and ears to hear. This man was a scribe, well-trained in Old Testament interpretation, Yet in all his studies, I know this can be the case for many, studies can get in the way of truly seeing the truth of Scripture. I know it did for me at times. But for this man, the Spirit raised his dead spirit, his dead soul, and gave him life so that he could understand. In all his studies, his knowledge was in service to the will of God and in obedience to God's command, and he did not use his scribal position to build his own case against Jesus. Here is one who by the Spirit seems to have been raised from spiritual death. This interaction is refreshing to my soul as I read it because Mark shows us the picture of a sincere, humble student of Jesus. There are four things that set him apart from the other religious leaders. And I I ask if these are things that are true also of our approach to Jesus. First of all, he saw that Jesus answered well. He didn't bring presuppositions against him. He wasn't trying to nitpick Jesus's answers. He listened to Jesus's answer and said, he speaks well. And in this last conversation, he has heard that eternity is at stake. There will be a resurrection. There will be a new state of things and there is eternal life. So he's eager to ask his question. Do we acknowledge that Jesus answers well? Second, this man asked a question for which he wanted a sincere answer. He was not afraid to look like he didn't know. He was willing to ask. He wanted wanted a sincere answer. He's, He's wondering, how do things work in this new order? This order where there is resurrection from the dead. What is this kingdom of God like? What is the character of this king who will bring eternal life? He is seeking to submit himself to God's design rather than to recast God into his own mold. The rest have rejected Jesus because he didn't fit their selfish grappling for power. So let's ask ourselves, when I ask a question of the Bible, or of the faith, or of our savior, am I eagerly awaiting an answer? Or am I skeptical that anything useful is going to come of it? Do we ask questions, For sincere answers. And third, what set him apart from all the others is that he agreed with Jesus. He says, you are right, teacher, in verse 32. No pushback, no plot to destroy him, no faithless competition with the peers, no fear of the public's opinion of him. I long to have that kind of response every time Jesus speaks. You are right, teacher. That is a great Stance when coming to God. When Jesus speaks, I want to say, yes, Lord. Oh, that what he says would be sufficient for you and for me. There are two positions when you come to Scripture. And I hinted at this a moment ago, but when I was doing great academic studies and thought that my intellectual knowledge of Scripture would become my source of salvation, I would come at Scripture above it, to dissect it, to give it meaning with historical input, with scholarly input. But there's another position, a better position, and it's one to come to Scripture underneath, to let the words of life pour into my life, to come subservient to it. Oh, that I might say, you are right, teacher, when I read God's Word. And then Jesus' response is different than his response to all the others. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Did you notice what he said to the Sadducees? He says in verse 27, you are quite wrong. He just tells them straight up, you're wrong. But to this man, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus answer is rich. And he says it here in verses 29, 30, and 31. He says, Hear, O Israel, this is the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Excuse me, I jumped down to the Deuteronomy quote. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus says, love the Lord your God. And this is a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You may have heard of it. It's called the Shema. This is a foundation, a core verse for Jewish monotheism. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's a beautiful passage that confidently states the oneness of God and commands his people to teach these basic tenets of the faith to their children, to make them a part of the fabric of discipleship that happens in the home. Speak of them when you rise and when you sit. To love the Lord your God is to keep the first four of the Ten Commandments. The first table. That's what it looks like to love God. With all your heart, that's your emotions. With all of your soul, that is your spirit. With all of your mind, your intellect. With all of your strength, with your will. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And this again is a quote. Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19 here which says you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord to love your neighbor is to keep the second table of the 10 commandments commandments number five through 10. These are, these describe what it looks like to love your neighbor. And while we know and take for granted the combination of love, the Lord, your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This here was groundbreaking. Jesus was the first one to put these two together. Love of God and a love of neighbor have to go hand in hand. And this is God's love. This is the kind of love that is patient and kind and does not envy and does not boast. It's also the love that John means when he says God is love. And in that passage, he says, we love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He also says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And also in first John four, he writes, In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And this is all flowing from what Jesus had commanded. Do we love our brother, our neighbor, our family, our boss, our co-workers, our authorities, our peers, our subordinates? If you love God, you will love all of these. Of course, this love isn't the hallmark definition of feel-good emotional attraction, nor is it a hands-off stance that accepts anything and everything that somebody else believes. Instead, it is a self-giving, self-denying, patient, enduring attitude toward others that does not rejoice when people are doing wrong. It rejoices with the truth. And it seeks that truth of Jesus to grow in anyone and everyone that we interact with. By emphasizing the love of God and the love of neighbor, Jesus is uh, avoiding two extremes. The first is mysticism. If he said, just love God, then we don't need to interact with the world. We don't need to tell anybody about the truth of Jesus. We can go be monks, hidden away in a cave somewhere, and love God best we can. And he he also avoids humanism, because if it's just love neighbor then it becomes a human-based good which sadly defines large segments of so-called Christianity today. As long as you do good, you can feel good about yourself. As long as you go to church, you can feel good about yourself, and there doesn't need to be any heart engagement with God himself. Our definition of what is good, our definition of love, does not come from one another. It comes from God, from his word. And so the scribe emphasizes here he says you are right teacher and then he goes and he says to love is better than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices the scribe agrees he he takes it a step further he's he's excited about jesus's answer and is running with it interacting with it he's bringing this crucial old testament truth that god desires the heart's more than he desires the sacrifices of his people. And you find this all throughout the Old Testament. I'll just read one or two examples here. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. There are other powerful instances in Psalm 40, Amos 5, Micah 6, 1 Samuel 15, and more. God doesn't want your show. He's not looking just for your attendance or your money or your theologically correct answers without your heart. The love of God includes your heart. If you do not offer your heart to God in prayer, I'm asking you to analyze, and this is convicting for me, analyze your prayer life. That is a place to regularly offer your heart to God in secret when you're alone. And if you do not pray to God, then maybe you should question why you even engage in all the other things that come along with this faith. Give him the deep recesses of your heart. In light of the conversations that Jesus had had with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, this man stands out because he does exactly what Psalm 40 says. He says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Do you delight to do God's will? Is his law within your heart? This man came to Jesus to learn to be changed. He came to submit. He came to do Jesus' will. He gave Jesus his heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one who comes to Jesus to control Jesus or demand of him or to use Jesus to justify their own agendas or anyone who comes to limit Jesus' power, none of these can be said to love the Lord their God. And if you do not love God, you cannot love your neighbor properly. Jesus responds at the end of this conversation. You are not far from the kingdom of God. There's no scribe that has authority to make that statement. There's no scribe that has access to the entrance of the kingdom of God on his own. This is an authority rooted, not even in the Torah. This is an authority rooted in the person of Jesus Christ himself. To enter the kingdom of God is to enter through Jesus, to come to him. And this scribe too did this. And he's about to witness that resurrection that opened wide the gate for all who believe to come in through Jesus when Jesus rose from the dead on that third day. Come to the risen King. Receive his gift of righteousness and forgiveness by faith. It is entirely free. It requires nothing of you to receive it, but trust in him. And in response, it is love. Love for God and love for neighbor with all you have. It costs nothing to get it, but it costs everything to live in it. But then, once we have given all that we have, Jesus blesses us with an inheritance far greater than anything we can imagine. And for those who have come to the risen King, come to him again. Return to him every day Receive his grace and grow in love for him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Would we be a place that does that? A place that seeks to follow his commands by loving the Lord and loving one another. Let's pray. Holy God, we have our own agendas, we come with bad intentions. Yet you, by your spirit, work sanctification in us anyway. And you have built faith in us. And we pray that we would continue to be active participants in your work. We pray that Jesus Christ would be the only one in whom we place our hope, knowing that the rest of this world will disappoint. Especially as we head into this Christmas week, would we see that Jesus' birth, this incarnation, was when the only hope entered this world. When we place our faith in him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.